You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where something about this issue seems oddly familiar. episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name's Sean Ningle, and what I do every Friday on the show is bring you a Green Lantern comic, or sometimes even a couple of Green Lantern comics, specifically from the ones that started with cover date June 1990 and ended with cover date November 2004. All the while, during the show, I put a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Reed, my two favorite Green Lantern characters in, well, all of Green Lantern history. This time out, we're once again just covering a single comic, continuing our look through the Green Lantern issues. This time we're coming up on issue number 158. We're back with Judd Winnick and Dale Englesham on uh, story and art duties, and, well, I'm kind of wondering what's going on. I don't know if Winnick has fallen into a rut after the hate crime storyline, I don't know if he's having to meet deadlines or he's got other projects in the fire, but this issue just doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. It's a lot of rehashing of Kyle being uncertain of what he's doing and being off on another planet, and it's not that it's a bad issue, it just feels kind of samey. And for the longest time with the Winnick run, there seemed to be a progression in the character, and I think since the hate crime storyline finished up, Winnick may have just felt like he's told his story, and he hasn't gone away to move on. But regardless, we'll be covering the issue. It's it's a good one. It's dealing with Kyle on another planet, dealing with the Guardians, and the youthful Guardians, and trying to make amends with some people who terraformed the planet who might have terraformed it in an improper way. Plus, we're also getting some emails as well as some promos for some podcasts you should definitely be checking out. All of that, of course, is coming up right after this, so stay tuned for the promos, and we'll catch you on the other side.
Okay. I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, can I always it then? Okay, okay, here we go. <clears throat> Iron Man, the Incredible Hulk, the Mighty Thor, the Captain America. Wow, being dramatic there, aren't we? Do do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting. Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, Mm -hmm. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the Ant-Man before he had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. He's not looking at Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found... <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad? Don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh. Yeah! Avengers! Inspirations! Podcast! Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you! Superman. Captain Marvel. Batman. It is 1985. Robin of Earth 2. Sergeant Rock. The Legion of Superheroes. This is the most eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. Tommy Tamara. Jonah Hex. Commandy. It will one day be called the greatest comic book event of all time. Swamp Thing. Wonder Woman. The New Teen Titans. The Haunted Tank. Infinity Incorporated. Worlds will live. Green Arrow. Worlds will die. Supergirl. The Flash. And that is only the beginning. The Justice League of America. The All-Star Squadron. The Huntress. Ariel. The Metal Man. Firestorm. The Nuclear Man. Outsiders. Green Lantern. The Blue Beetle. The Crime Syndicate. Warlord. The Guardians of the Universe. Tales of the Justice Society of America proudly presents... And many, many more. Crisis on Infinite Earths. The DC Universe will never be the same. Coming January only at twotruefreaks.com.
In Country has re-upped for another tour and we've been reassigned. Now you can find this complete look at Marvel Comics The Nom on the Two True Freaks Network. So join me, Tom Panneries, for In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics The Nom, every two weeks at twotruefreaks.com. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. And once again, we are back. But before we get into the coverage of the comic, like we usually do, I'm going to go check the Gmail account and see what letters I've gotten from you wonderful, wonderful listeners. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and it wouldn't be a proper Just One of the Guys show if I didn't have an email from my good friend to the Great White North, Mr. Scott Davis. Scott writes in with the title of his email, The Battle of Fire and Light. He says, Hi, Sean. I hope you're doing well these days. I was able to catch up on a few issues, and I thought I'd pass along my thoughts. Glad to hear that you're doing well, and I'm ready to listen to your thoughts on the issues. He starts with Green Lantern number 143, the Joker's Last Laugh storyline, and he says, I'm unfamiliar with this crossover, and it's a very forgettable issue. It's great to see Eagle Shan back in the title again, because his artwork is excellent. Yeah, that's been the thing that I've found throughout the Jedwinic run, that putting Eagle Sham with him has made him and Winnick sort of that kind of dynamic pair that Ron Mars and Daryl Banks was. It defines the style for that time period, and I think Eagle Sham's artwork really works with Winnick's writing. He also says, Is the plot really Graven searching for the perfect joke and then blowing up comedy clubs? Pretty weak. I don't really understand the commentary at the end either. How does Kyle's new... Uh, Power joined with Parallax, and on the last page are Kyle and Nero both looking at Oblivion. I don't get it, because it's definitely not the explosion that Kyle contained. It's very confusing. I was wondering how they were going to handle the 9-11 tragedy, and the last page with the iconic Superman was very nice. In Green Lantern number 144, he says, This was a good issue, and I do enjoy Eagle Shan's artwork, and he draws an amazing Jenny. On page two, do you think it's poor parenting let your kid look directly in the sun? Uh, yeah. You're supposed to use the little shadow box or whatever, or look through a pinhole uh, on a piece of paper and let it shine on another piece of paper. I think that's what you're supposed to do. So, yeah, bad parenting there. The poor kid's probably going to be burning his eyes out, and his brother looks on and says nothing. Oblivion shows up at this issue, and it's interesting he's still in the current series of Green Lantern New Guardians right now. Have you been keeping up to date on those? Uh, no, I haven't, but I have been listening to the Lantern cast, and just recently, uh, Chad Bokeman and Mark Marble talked about the uh, latest issue, I think number 39, where Kyle basically fights Oblivion in the issue, and it's all just a big fighty-fight issue. So, 
Oblivion's back. Hooray. Uh, continuing on, Scott says, Thank goodness Eaglesham kept the tidy whiteies on Kyle instead of going full nude when he was in the white dimension. Yes. Uh, glad that that happened, although I don't know why why he had to be running around in his underwear. Whatever. For the ladies, I guess. And I guess that answers the question, boxers or briefs. Ugh. That question was never, never posited. So, I really enjoyed it when Alan said, this is why heroes shouldn't date. Good issue. Then on to Green Lantern number 145, he says, this was a cool story, and the art by Eagle Sham was amazing. And the cover of Kyle surfing the green wave was fantastic. Yeah, that was the thing that really drew me into the issue, the sort of um, Will Eisner look of the covers. And I think that was pretty much an, an idea that they put forth on all the covers for that month. I don't know if it was because Will Eisner passed away that month, but it, uh, or whether they're just celebrating his birthday or something like that. But it, it was great. All the covers that month were great, and the the Green Lantern one was especially good. I don't understand why the Cordians showed up in this issue either. It was definitely a momentum killer, and I still can't figure out what, if they wanted to die or not. And what the heck happened to Nero at the end too? Was he left for dead in Kyle's white dimension? Um, I don't know. I think we'll be getting Nero back. In fact, if you listen to my other show, Parallel Lines, I I covered, or I should be covering here in a couple of weeks, some interstitial issues between Superman's reign and the last line of Tangent Run, where we talk about the Ion series from the mid-2000s, and it seems that Nero is a character that came back into that, so he's still around, I guess. Anyway, Scott continues going, I'm glad Eagle Sham was able to sign the new costume because it looks good. Good issue. Uh, I like the Ion. The Ion costume, not so much on the new um, Jim Lee-inspired one, but that's just me. Uh, Scott finishes up saying, I've recently been critical of Winnick's run to date, but I must admit the last two issues were really good, and I'm looking forward to Kyle's new role as Ion in the upcoming series. Thanks, Sean. Scott. Well, thank you, Scott, for writing in. It's always great to hear from you. It's always great to hear your commentary on the books. And thank you for being a huge Green Lantern fan. I know that you also write in again to the Lantern cast, and it's good to hear that you uh, enjoy this show as well, if if not as much. That makes no sense. Anyway, thanks again, Scott, for writing in. And again, if you'd like to write in with the show, the email address for the show is justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. I love getting letters from you. Please write in, and I will read your letter on the next show. But until then, I'm going to close up the mailbag and go ahead and get into my coverage of the next book, which is, of course, Green Lantern number 158. Green Lantern number 158 had a cover date of March 2003 and a release date of January 15th of 2003. The cover price for this issue was $225 US and $375 in Canada, and the title was Away From Home. Hmm. The writer was Judd Winnick, the penciler was Dale Eaglesham, inker was Rodney Ramos, letter was Kurt Hathaway, the colorist was Moose Bowman, the assistant editor was Morgan Dontaville, Dontonaville, the editor was Bob Shrek, and the cover art, once again, was by Ariel Olivetti. On the planet Oa, Ganthet, the last adult guardian of the universe, approaches Kyle Rayner, the last Green Lantern of the universe, who is busy playing with the toddler versions of the newly reborn guardians in the universe. Ganthet calls Kyle aside and asks him why he's abandoned his sector, and Kyle replies that he didn't abandon it. John Stewart is plenty capable of holding down the fort. 
Ganthet says that he understands, but he's still troubled by Cal's decision to take an extended leave of absence. That's not it at all, Cal retorts. I just thought that with no core to patrol the universe, there might be some sector that could use the attention of a Green Lantern. Changing his tone, Ganthet says he could be of use on a planet in Sector 1014, formerly patrolled by the Green Lantern Chip. On a small planet in the sector, a race of immigrant aliens are having some problems with attacks by giant rock creatures. The aliens radio for help, and luckily get it in the form of Kyle Brainer and Jenny Lynn Hayden coming in and attempting to contain the granite gargantuans. But before the Emerald Allies can find out just what's going on, the rock creatures make a hasty retreat, leaving Kyle and Jen puzzled as to why they attacked. As the aliens praise them for the rescue, Jenny and Kyle make their way to their leader, Chancellor Karen, who fills the duo in on their problems. The Rasal are a proud and industrious race who had to abandon their home planet because its resources had finally run out. Fortunately, they were able to find another planet that they could live on, and over the next several years, they moved their population to the New World and began colonizing and cultivating it. But soon after, the Rasal began suffering attacks from the rock creatures that they called Boar Beasts. The Brutes repeatedly attacked their homes, factories, and mining operations, causing countless casualties and massive devastation. Karen pleads for help, but Jenny is skeptical about his motivations, asking why they didn't know about these life forms before they settled here. Karen says that they always do a thorough search of the planet before they settle, and Jenny asks if they've done this before. Karen says that the Rasal are a nomadic race, and they've moved from three different worlds since he became Chancellor. This doesn't set well with Jenny, as later she tells Kyle that she sees the Rasal as locust, moving from planet to planet and sucking it dry, then moving on. Kyle asks her to drop the whole Rachel Carson bid and be reasonable, but Jenny retorts by saying that Kyle is being awfully forgiving considering the reasons for leaving Earth. But rather than have a lover's path, the two head out to find the source of the poor beast, and eventually come across a cave where they take the fight to a couple of the rocky renegades. But as they press further on into the cave, they find that they might have bitten off more than they can chew, as they are beset upon by hundreds of the rampaging boar beasts. The last issue we had by Faber and Eigel seemed to be a place filler so Winnick and Eaglesham could get back on track. However, it seems, like I said in the beginning of the show, that they're kind of running out of steam. My first thought here is that the title, Away From Home, was used just a few issues back to start the whole storyline about the Magdan and Mataik, you know, the characters that were essentially analogs for the Israelis and the Palestinians. Add to that the fact that this is just another veiled story about environmentalism and the overuse of natural resources, and I think we're about to get another Jen Winnick political screed. It's not that it's a bad thing, since Green Lantern is famous for taking on issues, but it just seems that Winnick isn't bringing his best to the book right now. With the great power of Ion's story and the intense hate crimes part two-parter, this just seems like a lesser entry. Possibly my perception's being skewed, since I know Winnick will be leaving the book soon, and might not have his art in it as much as he did when he started. But regardless, turning in lackluster stories is not really the best thing that a writer can do for a comic, especially a comic of, well, at this time, I don't think Green Lantern was important as it is right now, but a comic that had an impressive writer behind it. It's just kind of disappointing. But we'll go look through 
the book and see if we can find some of the better things coming out of the book. Starting off with cover, we've got, well, it's just average. It's not really all that entertaining. Uh, it's Kyle using a ring construct lasso to take down one of the boar beasts. It's all right, but I also have to comment that the back in the saddle line was also used as a title for a book not more than a year ago. It seems that either A, they're just reusing titles and not really caring whether they use them over again, or forgetting that they use these titles and using them again without any recollection of it. Either way, it's kind of lazy story writing and, well, it's just lazy. Page one, again, I'm still amazed that the last will and testament of Hal Jordan's storyline is still being referenced in the book. Uh, I thought that that was such a quirky story that I didn't think there would be any way that it would tie into the regular continuity, but it seems to be having a lasting impact, at least in the current comics. The fact that it was Tom Kalamaku and Hal Jordan's ring that brought Oa back specifically, even though Kyle brought back the Green Lantern power, has stayed in continuity. I know there are people out there who really enjoyed that storyline, but I just found it out of place. And the fact that it does have such a tie-in to the Green Lantern mythos at this time is kind of surprising. Pages two through three, I think Eaglesham does a really great job drawing the Guardian children. They all look very unique. There's not a one of them looks exactly the same as the other. They look similar enough that you can tell that they're all sort of family or related, but they don't look like they're all stock drawings of the same person, like the same Julia Schwartz type character. Plus, Eaglesham also draws them to look like children rather than look down like shrunken down versions of adults. That seems to be one of the tropes with lesser artists. They can't quite draw children correctly, and I think here Eaglesham does a good job of drawing the guardians, the toddler guardians, as toddlers. But however, on page four, Gantlet looks a bit off. Uh, he's still got the ponytail hair, but the way he's got it pulled back is in a looser ponytail, so his hair looks kind of bobbed down. He looks more like the... Looking at him in the second panel, he looks like Ricardo Maltabon from Space Seed. He's got the sort of Prince Valiant cut, I think, if that's what I'm going for. It's just a weird look. Page 6, it was nice to see some former Green Lanterns at the book, even if it is in flashback, and it's nice to see Chip in the book specifically. Even though he does look a little off here, he looks... <sighs> the whisker, he doesn't look as cute. He looks more grim. Uh, he's got a bigger mustache or face. It's it's a little off, but it, regardless, it's nice to see other lanterns being drawn in the book. Page 10 is Kyle's trying to take down one of the boar beasts. He rings up a lasso to take them down, as well as a pair of chaps and a cowboy hat for himself to wear, which just seems a bit of a stretch, but uh, whatever. I guess he's getting into the whole lasso um type rodeo motif. Sure, why not? Page 12, another credit to Eagle Sham as an artist here. Karen, the chancellor of the Rasal people, is really drawn with that look of a schemer or a politician or someone who's 
obviously kind of shady, so you wouldn't really put all that much trust in him. And it's nice that Eaglesham can convey that and just the look of his eyes. Now, granted, his face is a sort of odd yellow look, but the way that he's being, he, the way that he is expressing himself gives you that sort of feel that he's being deceitful in some manner. So good work on uh, Eaglesham for being able to convey that simply with the artwork. Pages 13 and 14, everything goes all sepia and the corners get rounded for the flashback. So you can tell that it's a flashback. However, on page 14, when we have the panels, they're not rounded. So I'm wondering if this is to say that this isn't necessarily a flashback, that this is a fiction that the Rasal people and specifically Karen is making up to try and deceive Kyle. If it is, it's an interesting visual clue that they're putting in in the paneling border of the page. So that's kind of nice there. And once again, going to the artwork, moving on to page 16, panels 1 to 2, it's a really nice transition here to show the passage of time. You see in panel 1 the image of Jenny, but in the second panel you can see it's the same image of Jenny with her same facial features, but her hair is being kind of windswept and the background's a little different. It's an interesting way to show the passage of time uh, with having her image statted from one panel to the next. It's it's really good graphic design, really good artwork throughout the book, and it it's a nice way of letting you know. Ecosham does a really good job of storytelling, which enhances what Winnick is supposed to be doing. So, but page seventeen, panel two. I'm really kind of annoyed that Jenny's making the statement that the world is mad and fighting back. This seems to be a trope that only works in science fiction universes where there are actual sentient planets. I don't buy into the idea that when we drill into a planet, it starts doing things to mess us up. Maybe that's just me. I'm I'm not going to get into political debate on the show because that's not what this show is about. But I think these kind of tropes where the planet fights back about the about these invading forces works better in sci-fi universes where there's a concept of planets with sort of living entities or living entities within it. In normal situations, I don't buy it so much, but. In general, that's all my notes. The last part of the book's just a bunch of punchy-punchy run-run. Good art, decent story, but it feels, like I said, kind of preachy and kind of the samey. So I'm hoping it's not Judd Winnick running, ending his run on a down note. I want to see him go out on a positive, but we'll have to see. We'll also have to see what kind of stuff they're going to be advertising in the book, so let's take a look at the ads. The front and side cover is an advertisement for Juicy Fruit, which tells you to wear a car door. And whenever someone comes and approaches you and asks you for Juicy Fruit, you just roll up the window of the car door that you happen to be have strapped to your side as you're walking around. I don't get you, Juicy Fruit, at all. Next ad is for Ratchet & Clank, the platformer game. I guess this is the first Ratchet & Clank, and it shows a bunch of the weapons you can use in the game. Never played it. 
Next page is an advertisement for the Joe Kubert School with a list of some of the alumni, including Kevin Altieri, Sergio Curiello, Amanda Connor, Jan Drusema, Matt Hollinsworth, Carl Kessel, uh, Miku, Adam and Andy Kubert, Tom Mandrake, Damian Scott, Bart Sears, Andy Smith, Tim Truman, Rick Beach, uh, Brandon Vetti, and Lee Weeks, and Jason Wright. And it's got a sort of well, muscular Flash Gordon type person, one side completely inked and drawn, the other side sort of sketched out. It's It's an interesting little thing for the Joe Kubert School. After that, we've got another advertisement with that sort of wacky Coca-Cola type. Oh, it's the same kind of art style that we had for the Coca-Cola advertisements in the late 90s, except this time, rather than being for Coca-Cola, it's for Tony's Pizza, the uh, really cheapy frozen pizza you can buy. And obviously it uh, makes people want to jump off bridges for it. So, sure. We have a Starburst Sour ad, which has a person lying on a bed with a, with a, what is it, an electro, it's not an electrocephalograph, it's a cardiac defibrillator pad strapped to, or touching an apple, which is strapped to his mouth, and he looks like he's about to defibrillate the apple, which I don't know what that would do, but I can't imagine it would be good. After that, we get a page for a bunch of Sonic games on the Nintendo GameCube. Then another ad for the Magic Super Series. Uh, I guess the one where you can win a $1,000 scholarship for being an impressive Magic the Gathering player. I think we covered that last time. Get a weird advertisement for Fax, the anti-drug, which is essentially, I guess, the truth for pot, which shows various different things that people did because they were smoking pot, including sniffing a cat's butt, making a 12-inch lint ball, forgetting something, and not seeing emerging trucks. So, obviously, they're trying to point out that marijuana is bad for you kids. After that, we've got advertisement for the Wizard World. I guess this would be the 2002 awards, and it's got all the ads for favorite writer, penciler, breakout talent, inker, painter, colorist, letter, editor, hero, heroine, villain, supporting character, ongoing series, miniseries, one-shot, publisher, comic book franchise, TV or movie project, and greatest moment of 2002. And looking through all the things, not one thing from Green Lantern is here. Got a couple of things from Green Arrow, specifically I think because Kevin Smith was coming back to do the Quiver storyline, so there's that. But, yep, no Green Lantern. There you go. After that, we get an advertisement for the ongoing Batman series by Jeff Loeb, Scott Lee, and or not Scott Lee, Jim Lee, and Scott Williams. Uh, it's got an image of Batman with... I guess Catwoman tied up in some vines. Kind of creepy, but very Jim Lee, I guess. Back inside cover is an advertisement for the X Games, uh, Winter X Games, number seven, with uh, someone flipping a motorcycle. Interesting there. And the back outside cover is for Black and Bruised, which I guess is another sort of Mike Tyson's punch-out, except brought up for the GameCube and the PlayStation 2. So... Interesting. Never got into uh, Mike Tyson's punch out. I could never make them move out of the way in the right place. So that's just me, though. 
But there you go, another issue of Green Lantern. Not one of the best ones, but definitely not one of the worst ones. Uh, hopefully we'll be getting more next time, because we'll be looking at what Kyle has to do with these boar bees. Maybe he'll be checking in with Terry, and we'll see a little bit of that. But regardless of what happens at the book, I will be here next Friday, and hopefully you will as well. So I'd like to thank you once again for downloading and listening, and make sure to come back, like I said, next Friday for another brand new episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Until then, everyone, have a good week. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the movie tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcome. All spambots are warmly welcome, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well, and now you can find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonza Core contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining the little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenland. The opening music for today's show was So Far Away by the band Stained, off their album 14 Shades of Grey, which I guess is 36 less shades of grey than that awful, awful movie. (sighs) The less said about it, the better. Anyhow, if you'd like to get this song, or any other song by Stained, or any other of those wonderful alternative bands from the 90s, then I suggest you go to Amazon.com. Of course, if you want to go to Amazon.com and you'd like to help out a wonderful website, why don't you go to TwoTrueFreaks.com at first? If you go to TwoTrueFreaks.com and click on the link in the upper left-hand corner of the webpage, you'll be transported to Amazon.com where you could buy Stained, Cold, Disturbed, Candlebox, any of those bands that were kind of mopey throughout the late 90s, early 2000s, and all at ridiculously low prices. And of course, every time you use the link at TutureFreaks.com, a small amount of your purchase price will go back to the website. You won't see anything extra taken out of your wallet, but Amazon graciously gives us a little money for advertising for their site. So anytime you're thinking about buying things from Amazon.com, please make sure you use the link at TutureFreaks.com.